morning, but I chose the first two songs to actually be songs that were inspired by the writing of Paul in 2 Corinthians. Uh, one was from chapter 5, and I'm trying to remember what the other one was, but it, they, they're both direct scriptures from 2 Corinthians. And what we'll find as we look at 2 Corinthians is that 2 Corinthians was a book, the second letter written to the Corinthian church, and it was written to them not like 1 Corinthians, which was a really strong rebuke against them as a church. They were behaving like children. And so Paul spoke to them like they were children. And they were his children. He had arrived there in Corinth at a time when he was on a missionary journey. And as he was planning churches wherever he stayed, he stayed in Corinth the longest of any of the places. And, and the second longest, he stayed in Ephesus. And he writes to the Corinthians in this letter from the place of Ephesus, which is a very parallel society, very depraved, lots of idolatry, uh, a pagan culture that had not had the gospel shared there yet. And so when Paul arrived there and he planted the church, he went first to the synagogue as he always did. And we actually get the chronicle there in Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, we find Paul traveling along his missionary journey And when he arrives in Corinth, he's just left one of the most prominent cities in the ancient Greek world, and that's Athens. To this very day, Athens is a very popular place to go visit if you go on a a journey there. But in Corinth, it says in chapter 18 of Acts, after these things, after he left Athens, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila. Now, Aquila's wife's name was Priscilla, so they're a very cute couple, you know, Aquila and Priscilla. You get rhyming names, and everybody automatically sees a cute couple. They were born in Pontus and had recently came from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from, the, from Rome. And he came to them, so because he was of the same trade as Aquila and Priscilla, he stayed with them and he worked. He was a tent maker by trade. For by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. And so Paul would go into every town that he went to, and he would first go to the Jewish people. He would go to them and he would share, hey, Jesus has fulfilled the law that you follow. And he would proclaim to them over and over how Jesus was the fulfillment of all that they were practicing. And if you want a snippet of that, if you want a very, well, I call it a snippet, but if you want kind of an an expounded view on how Jesus fulfilled the law for the Jew, go to read the book of Hebrews, and Paul explains it. Well, I believe Paul wrote it, but he explains it in such a way that you can't help but walk away and say Jesus is better than all of the sacrificial system, the altar, the temple. It all was a picture and pointed to Christ from the Old Testament. So Paul would explain that in the synagogue, and then when he would leave there, He would come back the next week and he would do it again. But it says there in verse 5 of Acts 18 that two people, Silas and Timothy, had come from Macedonia and Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. And so when when Timothy and Silas came from Macedonia and met him there in Corinth, it was all of a sudden Paul... For some reason, he was, he was given great boldness. He was no longer there by himself as a believer, but he was 
He had two of his fellow servants with him, and he had this great boldness. And it says there, when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. In other words, Paul, all of a sudden having this boldness, he spoke more boldly. And as he spoke more boldly, all of a sudden this place he was going to every week, they no longer could take his message. It was too much for them. They said, hey, uh, you know, we've liked you until now, but you're getting a little personal with your messages. We're convicted. You need to go. And so they sent Paul out of the synagogue. Well, Paul wasn't going to be deterred just by a little bit of persecution. When they opposed him and blasphemed, go down to uh, verse 7, he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Titius Justice. Now, in your Bibles, it probably just says Justice. And it says there about him, one who worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. So Paul was pushed away. He left. But notice where he went. He he didn't go very far. He went to the household right next door to a man's house by the name of Justice. He has a Greek name, so more than likely he was a pagan person. He wasn't a Jew. He was a Gentile. One who worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus The ruler of the synagogue believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. And so Paul has started this church in Corinth with adversity. He didn't go there and they go, oh, we love your message. Uh, Here's a building. They didn't, you know, roll out the red carpet and say, hey, we love you. Keep doing what you do. Um, The Jewish believers actually said, why don't you get out of our town? We don't have any room for your message. We don't want to hear it. And so because of that, Paul stayed there and he found another avenue. If God shuts a door, go look for an open one. And, and many times what God will do is he'll, he'll shut areas and he'll kind of hem you in, kind of like you do with cattle guards. You put them in the way so you can funnel your animals into a certain spot so you can send them to the chute and you can put the medicine in them. And God does the same thing. Sometimes he says, no, I don't want you to go in this direction. But we see it as someone saying, hey, leave. But sometimes the Lord works through those people in your life that shut things down to send you in a direction that he wants to send you. So even now, Paul is already learning the lesson in the book of Acts that sometimes God shuts things down for a good reason. And so as he shut this down, Paul, being discouraged, but ends up going in a different direction. And in verse 9, it says, The Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. He says, Do not be afraid. I don't know about your Bibles, but in mine, it's in red letters. That means Jesus is speaking it. So when Paul's hearing the voice of the Lord, he's hearing Jesus meet with him in the midst of his stress, in the midst of his trial. And Jesus says, Don't be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you. Jesus has promised many things to his believers, some of which are not promises that we have written down in our little Jesus promise books. You know, if you desire to live godly, you will suffer persecution. If you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. We don't write that down and go, hey, this is what I want to memorize about the Lord. But he has nonetheless promised it. But here he reminds a promise that he gave the disciples on the day he ascended to the Father. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. Is Paul doing that? Yes. Teaching them to obey all that I have taught you. And lo, 
He says, I am with you while you do this. I'm with you until the end of the age. And so as he's told him this, Jesus isn't saying anything new that he's not already told Paul. He's reminding him of something he's already told him because he knows we forget. Reminders are there because we forget. He says, for I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you for I have many people in this city. So Paul is discouraged and Jesus meets with him and says, I know you're discouraged, but keep going. There are many people I desire to meet for me, and I'm going to use you to do it in this town. And so there was adversaries after that. There was adversity. There were bad situations. There was trials and tribulations, and there was suffering. But all along the while, Jesus was the anchor for Paul. So if you read the book of Acts and you see Paul and you're like, wow, this guy is amazing realize, and we're getting ready to read this in the letter of 2 Corinthians, that just because Paul was used greatly by God does not mean he was never discouraged. I like that because I get discouraged. I like that because I read something this week that said that Charles Haddon Spurgeon, which was called the Prince of Preachers in his day, he was a preacher that reached more people, and I still read his notes, and many other pastors do. God used him in a mighty way, but what it was said of him and what he told other believers was, I get so depressed sometimes in the midst of the work God's given me to do, I hope none of you ever experience it. That's what he said. So just because you're depressed, just because things aren't working out the way you thought they would, just because you're suffering or in a trial or in tribulation, don't think that Jesus isn't there with you because many people fall to the trap believing that if, if you're discouraged or if things aren't working out exactly the way you thought they were, then you're not in the will of God. But the case is, is that's not true at all. Many times that's a lie from the pit of hell. Satan would love for you to think that just because you're discouraged, God's not working in your life. But what Paul's going to write in the beginning of this letter is that when you are discouraged, look out because you're getting ready to grow. Look out, because God is right there with you. He wants to be. So back in 2 Corinthians, and we'll begin it now, Paul writes to this Corinthian group of believers. But what I want to point out to you is that this group, even though they kind of thought highly of themselves, if you read the first letter that he wrote to them, they thought pretty highly of themselves. And what Paul writes to them in the letter of 1 Corinthians is that uh, you guys, there's not really much about you guys to boast about other than Jesus has saved you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, he actually says this to them. He says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. You guys were called, but there's not many among you that are very noble. He says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. So if God has used you or God desires to use you, maybe this can be your life verse. You know, like God's chosen to use the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. That's who he uses. People that in the eyes of the world are foolish and not very smart or not very in high position in their society. That's who God chooses to use. This is a proper perspective of who we really are. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are now in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. God's given us his wisdom through Jesus. 
And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11, he actually uh, discusses some other things. This group of believers uh, were in a pagan society. They had idol worship. Part of the worship in their idol temples was actually um, that they, would, they had temple prostitutes. They were living in a debased society. And many of them had practiced that their whole life. It's what they were born into. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul says this to them. He says, uh, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. That's the bad news, right? But verse 11 shows us the good news. They had received the gospel. He says, verse 11, such were, such were some of you. He says, this is, this, this is your inheritance. This is where you came from. And such were some of you. He says there, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. This is where you came from. And so you can imagine a church that is made of this type of people. There could be a lot of potential for God to reach people that are from that same background, but there can also be tons of potential for a lot of problems. Because what people do is when they become Christians, they bring in with them all the baggage from their past life. And we all have it, whether we recognize it or not. And so we bring in these ideologies and these theories and the, these theologies, these what I've heard people call the, the coffee cup theologies. We see them on a coffee cup, and we're like, it's got to be true. Except nowadays, we don't see it on, on that. We see it on Facebook. Somebody goes, share. And then you read it, and you're like, hey, I think that's true. It must be right. I just read it on Facebook. Or I saw it on the internets. Everything on the internets is true, right? But we need to be careful what we take heed to, because many times we read those things, we digest them, but we don't digest them with our gospel glasses on. We don't digest them with the, hey, is this true or not? We need to be discerning in what we eat. And so Paul is telling them, just because you believe a certain thing, that that's where you may, may be something that you need to spit back out. It's not good for you. So here we are in 2 Corinthians. He's, he's writing a letter. The second letter is not to rebuke them anymore. He's already done the work of rebuke, but he's going to comfort them. He's going to encourage them. He's going to strengthen them. He's going to lift up their feeble hands. He's going to say, you've been broken. Now you need to be restored. And in this case, one of the reasons he writes this letter, if you remember in 1 Corinthians or if you've read it before, there was a man who was actually committing adultery with his father's wife. And it was his stepmom, but nonetheless, God looks at it like incest. And so he said, hey, put this guy out of fellowship. He is a sinning brother. He needs to be corrected. If you guys are just going to be graceful with him, the way to be graceful with him is to tell him he's wrong and he needs to change. But in the second letter, we're going to see in chapter 2, he actually says, hey, he's repented. Don't leave him out there by himself. Bring him back in. He needs to be encouraged. He's done the works of repentance. Now go and remind him that God loves him. He need, break his legs, yes, but bring him back so that he can be restored and healed and put a splint on him. Don't leave him there broken. Bring in your broken people. The church is supposed to be a hospital. It's supposed to be kind of like a triage. 
We see what's going on with people. We don't ask them how they got there. We bring them in and we bind them up. We encourage them. And so Paul says this to them in this letter. So he begins the letter, finally, in verse 1, by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. And he writes this in many of his letters to the churches. He always says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm not coming on my own authority. I come on the authority of God. Now, that's heavy words, right? And there are those who say, I have the authority of God on me. We'll test their works, watch their life. If that is, in fact, the case, their lifestyle will match up with what God would call good. He says, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. I didn't choose it. God chose me. And Timothy, our brother. So, he says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, which is why we call it the letter to the Corinthians, with all the saints who are in all Achaia. So if you remember, if you could get a, a map in your mind, or if you look in the back of your Bible, there should be a map of Paul's journeys, if you got one of those Bibles. And in there, you'll see the peninsula of Greece. And there's lots of islands around it. There's Crete at the bottom. But what you'll notice is that there's this section. There's Athens, and then there's Corinth. And Corinth was right between the, the main body of land and the Peloponnesian Peninsula, which is down on the end. And in there, there's a little piece of land that connects it about three and a half miles wide where sailors would sail their ships in. And if they were a small ship, they could, any ship could either go through this little section of land or it could go all the way around down south. Well, if it goes all the way around down south, the sailors said in that day, if you want to go around the south of this peninsula, then you better write out your will first because you're probably going to die. So it was either that and many months of journeying, or you could go across this isthmus, and they actually had porters. If you had a small ship, they would put it up on logs, they would roll it three and a half miles. That was easier than sailing around. Or they would take your ship, if it was a large ship, they would take all the cargo off, they would put it on carts, they'd take it three and a half miles, and then they would also take your ship, but they'd take it empty. So during the time, this is a sailor's port, And so in the sailor's port, I don't know if you know anything about sailors, but they're not known for living clean lifestyles. Not all of them, but most of them. If you say someone cusses like a sailor, everybody knows what that means, right? And to be a Corinthian was the same way. If someone called you a Corinthian, that was synonymous with someone who lives a debauched lifestyle and someone who is uh, usually a drunkard someone who is loose in their uh, intimate living. And so this culture is where Paul decides, I want to plant a church. The reason being is if you can imagine the amount of people coming through this city, this is a very influential area. This is a center of influence for the entire world if sailors are coming through. And so Paul plants a church here. But there are many adversaries against the gospel, one of which would be those that support the temple. And so Paul, here, he's writing to a group who are believers in this city of Achaia. And Achaia is the surrounding area around Corinth. But here's what he writes to this troublesome church that he wrote to in 1 Corinthians. He doesn't say, hey, you annoying bunch of people that won't get your lives together. He doesn't say, I'm tired of dealing with you. What he says to them is he says, grace Grace is God's undeserved favor. Mercy 
is God not giving us what we do deserve. Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. We can't earn it. So he says grace to you, and he says peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I bring to you good accord. I I want you to be blessed. And then he says this. He begins this letter, and he begins it by saying to them, it's, it's words of worship. He begins by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I, I don't know about you guys, but I've noticed a, like a key word in, that, in those couple of verses. seems like the word comfort comes up a lot. Now, he's not c- talking about the comfort that I like. He's not talking about, you know, the, the big, huge chair I got at my house that's super puffy, fits my whole family, and then I just kick that thing back, and I drink my coffee in the morning. That, to me, that's comfort. And then the other comfort I like is not having to go to work that day. You know, I want to stay there. I don't want to leave that place. But the kind of comfort that Paul is writing here about is something different. This is comfort that we receive in tribulation. He says there, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I receive some sort of tribulation, some sort of suffering, some sort of trial in my life, I I don't want to be comforted in it. I want to be comforted as I leave it. You know, bind up my wounds and it's over now. Lord, please remove this trial from my life. I can't tell you how many times I've prayed that. But it says here that he says, who comforts us in all our tribulation. Now, what is the word tribulation? Well, there's a Greek word called philibus. I'm probably saying it wrong. I'm sure I'm saying it wrong. Uh, Philipsis, there it is. Comforts us in all our philipsis. Now, philipsis, the word there, because I don't know about you guys, I, I sing that song, we have this treasure in jars of clay, so that we know that the power is not from God. We're afflicted in every way. I've sang that on weeks and gone, I'm not afflicted in every way. But in here, the affliction he's talking about, the thalipsis, is actually the pressures of life. It's the pressures that we get at work. It's the pressures we get in home. It's the pressures that we experience when we are on the way to work. We're like, oh, I forgot to do that before I left work. Or, you know, just, just life in general that, tends to squeeze on us so much that we're, we're just not comfortable. When's this going to be? When can I retire? You know, those kind of thoughts come up into our minds. If I'll retire, then this won't be here anymore. Well, it won't be there in that fashion, but there will be pressures from other areas. Now, how am I going to pay my bills? Did I invest enough? Did I set enough aside? Did I, in, in all these things, how am I going to replace my roof? You know, when you retire, you re, got to replace your roof still, right? Because the thing wears out and Just all of those things that press in on you. I'm just stating things that I think about. Maybe there are things in your life that press in on you that you can more relate to. I'm sure there are. That stuff doesn't go away. Suffering, trials, tribulation, they're no respecter of persons. No matter who you talk to, there are celebrities that have more money than anyone in the entire world, and they still experience trials, tribulations, and suffering. And so how do we deal with that? Well, Paul here says, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, he comforts us in all our tribulation, all the things that press in on us. He comforts us so we can comfort others. Now, 
If someone you know is going through a trial, you should be there with them and encourage them, but don't ever look at them while they're in the midst of the trial and say, don't worry, God's going to use this. You'll be good later. They're going to spit in your face and you're going to deserve it. You know, we, that's not why, but God does tell us here through the pen of Paul that God comforts us because he loves us first and foremost, but also because then we can comfort those who are also in tribulation with the comfort that we first received from where? From Jesus himself. Paul's received it. We read it in Acts 18. We have the ability to receive it. God's going to be there with us. And then we get to show that to others. Hey, I'm going through this thing. I don't even know how to deal with it. Somebody that doesn't know the Lord. And then you can look at them and say, hey, I don't know how you're going to be comforted, but I know that Jesus can comfort you. He's the answer. You know, it's a Sunday school answer. How do I go through this, Jesus? You know, what does that look like? Just go to church? No. Have a personal relationship with Jesus. He can be your anchor while the wind is blowing. He will keep you from being moved. Now, Paul's going to go on to say here, hey, this isn't something I'm just, you know, quoting from a textbook. This is something I've experienced I've, tempt, I've, I've tested it. I've tried it. I've been jerked around. And he's going to explain towards the end of this book, I've been shipwrecked so many times. I've been lashed and beat. And he's not talking about like somebody hit him with a belt. He's been whipped like Jesus was whipped, almost to the point of death. He says, Lord, the Lord can be the God of all comfort. He has been for me. So he says there in verse 5, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Our hope is not in being comfortable. Our hope is being comforted by the Lord until we're delivered to our heavenly home. That's where we receive our consolation. That's where we receive our prize. Our comfort will be fulfilled when we walk into the presence of Jesus. We look at him face to face, and he just looks at us and he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Or, He says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. But the reality is we will receive our consolation in Christ. He is our reward. And I want to read a passage that some of you are probably familiar with. If you turn to Daniel chapter 3. In the Old Testament, there are so many awesome stories. There are so many times where we read something and we're like, why didn't they make a movie out of that? You know? Of course, there are times nowadays where they make a movie out of it, and you're like, why didn't you just tell the actual story? That story was good enough on its own. You know, I, we watched Noah one night just to see. We're like, let's see how far they go before it leaves the biblical text. So three seconds in, we were like, hey, it's over. That's the story. They made up. I don't know why you got to make stuff up. These stories are good enough on their own. I mean, if you just tell the life of Jacob, I don't know why we'd need a soap opera, you know? There are so many messed up relationships. I mean, if, if there's a person in the world that says, I can't really relate to the Bible. My life isn't all cleaned up. Read the Old Testament and you'll be able to tell. You can. Anyway, I'm done with my soapbox. All right. Whew. I'm glad I got that off my chest. So in Daniel chapter 3, we have three people. If you ever went to Sunday school at all, you've heard of them. But you probably call them by their pagan names because they were renamed by Daniel, or excuse me, by the King Nebuchadnezzar. They call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Many of you probably don't even know what their actual names were. Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, right? 
So that was their Hebrew names. They were given these names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because they were named after those pagan gods. They wanted to change the identity of these three Hebrew men. But what it says in Daniel is that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura. Now, how, how much is a cubit? Who cares? He's just saying it's really big, okay? It's a really big image. And so he calls all the satraps, all the leaders, all the heads of household. He says, come to the plains of Dura, and I've got a band. They've got lyres and harps and all this stuff. And when they start playing their music in one accord, I want you to bow down and I want you to worship the statue of me. Now, okay, so that's what they were called to do. You come to the plains of Dura, come and worship me. I've got this big statue I had made. And so these three Hebrew men, they come to the plain. I don't know about you guys, but I would have said, no, I'm staying at my house. What are you going to do? Get the satellite image of me and know I'm not there and then come punish me? They're not going to know. Look at all these people that are coming. But these three Hebrew men, they say, okay, we're coming. We're going to do what our king tells us to do. Now, their true king is the Lord, but they went and they did what their leaders told them to do. So when they got there, verse 4 says, A herald cried out, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Huh. Maybe we shouldn't have come to this thing, right? But that's not what they say. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn and all the other instruments, they fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans, the people of the land, came forward and accused the Jews... They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. That's what they would say. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever doesn't will be cast in the fiery furnace. Well, there's three men here. They're not falling in line. They're not walking with the crowd. They're not doing what you said. What are you going to do? Well, he's already told them what he's going to do. And so he approaches them, and he says this. He's in a rage and in fury, and he gave the command to bring these three forward. So they brought these men before the king, and he spoke to them, saying, Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image which I've set up? If you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, I'm going to give you a second chance. So he gives them a second chance. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Where's your God now? Who's going to deliver you? And so they say, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. That's a statement of faith, by the way. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. So there's an act of defiance there, right? We're supposed to obey our earthly masters as unto the Lord. 
But when our earthly master says, hey, you need to do something that calls you to break one of the commandments or to disobey the Lord, at that point, you can say no. It's okay. And guess what? When you obey the Lord, he protects you. He will deliver. He is able to deliver. But even if he doesn't, they say, we're not going to do it. That, I, mean, I don't know about you guys, but they're anchored. They're in this foreign land. They've had their names changed. Basically, they're trying to erase their identity and reprogram. And they're like, look, we're not robots. You can't reprogram us. We serve the Lord. We are one-hearted. We're sincere. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury. You can imagine he'd be much more angry. And the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Uh, so fire wasn't enough. We need hotter fire. I don't know how much hotter fire it can get, but he turns up the burner. And it says there, he commanded certain mighty men, verse 20, of valor, who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He wanted his best not tires. And he cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Notice this. These men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace was exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. His, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar were killed trying to kill these guys. I mean, this man was furious. And it says there, these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. And then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose in haste and spoke, saying in his counsel, to his counselors, didn't we cast three men into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. 25 says, Look, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. How many times have you prayed, Lord, take me out of this situation. Change things. Stop this thing from pressing on me. And all the while, many times when we pray those situations away, what we're really doing is we're praying away those opportunities for us to fellowship with Jesus. Jesus met with them. Not just a son of God, but the son of God jumped in the furnace with them and met with them. And you'll notice that they didn't leave the fiery furnace until they were called out. Do you know why? Because they were in the presence of Jesus. You don't leave that unless you're called away from it. They stayed in the fire because that's where the Lord was. And when they left the fire, they were totally chained, changed. They were unbound. They were no longer chained. They were freed from what had bound them. And not only that, I guarantee that they were totally different. Even though they were hard set on following the Lord, I guarantee there was something new about them. I think their character had probably changed. They had had their character refined in the fiery furnace of the trial. And so as they left, they were no doubt different. They were free. Verse 5 says, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. And if we are afflicted, verse 6, sorry, I'm back in 2 Corinthians, I jumped on you. If we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Now there's two kinds of affliction he's talking about here. One is thelipsis, the pressures of life. 
trying to get us to stop doing what God's called us to do. But there's the other kind of affliction where it's called afflictions in Christ, which are described in Matthew chapter 5, where he's giving the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about the Beatitudes. And he says, Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the consolation. We receive the kingdom. Where is the kingdom of God received? Through Jesus. And so when they are in the fiery furnace and they meet up with Jesus, then also we, when we go through our fiery furnaces and trials, we receive our consolation in the person of Jesus, being there with us in the midst of our trial. And our hope for you, verse 7 is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. And so we, do, we allow children to suffer. God allows his children to suffer, and that's okay. But he also delivers us through the suffering. And so <laughs> Paul goes on, and he doesn't leave this just at theory. He puts it to practice. If you guys ever been in a class or learned something and it was all from the book and you get to apply it so you don't really remember it. And Paul says in verse 8, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, does deliver us in whom we trust, that he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf of the gift granted to us through many. So he's saying, basically he's, he's kind of defending himself here because one of the reasons he wrote this letter was they were questioning whether he was actually an apostle of God or not. Paul had received afflictions, he had gone through adversity, and on top of that, the people that he came to share the message of the gospel with started to question if his motives were right or not. So he's going to spend the first seven chapters kind of explaining that he is an apostle of God, and this is what it looks like. But he writes to them, and he explains to them that God has delivered me. And he says, the reason that I didn't fulfill what I told you in 1 Corinthians 16, even though he wouldn't have said that, in the first letter, he told them, he says, I want to come to see you. And on the way to Macedonia, I will. 1 Corinthians 16, he says this. Skip the page. He says, I will come to you, verse 5. I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. Paul says, if the Lord permits, I'm going to come see you. And they heard, I'm on my way. And so because he didn't come, they said, okay, well, we'll give him a little more time. He's not here. He hasn't come. Here it is three months later. What's going on? Next thing you know, they're going, is he even an apostle? If he was really an apostle, his yes would be yes, and his no would be no. 
But Paul did write, if the Lord permits. It wasn't like he could just jump on a plane or a train or get in a car, rent a car. In that day, to travel was a dangerous experience. You'd jump on a ship. You had to sail somewhere. And Paul's saying, hey, the Lord shut this down. I had to remain in Ephesus. And he wrote in the last letter where there are many adversaries. And so Paul is explaining to them, just because I didn't come doesn't mean that God's not faithful. Just because I didn't come doesn't mean that I'm a liar. It just means that my plans got changed. We make plans and God laughs. It's not because he's mean, it's just because he changes our plans. He wants to do something else and we weren't really in his will. So he goes, hey, you're going to have to wait a little while longer. You're going to have to wait a little while longer. Okay, now you can go. You know, Paul had put it in the heart of, God had put it in the heart of Paul to go to this place, and yet he shut it down for a time. And then he says this in verse 12. For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and in godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. I like this about Paul. Paul's goal was to be simple and sincere. Simple means to be one-minded. Sincere means to be without wax. Now, that doesn't mean anything to us. Cause, but in that day, they would make those busts that you see in the, in the museums. You ever notice how all those busts are missing the nose? Those busts, those sculptures, were not sincere. What I mean by that is a, an artisan would make those. He would chip it out of a big piece of stone. It would take him months, sometimes years. By the time he got done, if a little piece would break off, he wouldn't make any money, right? It's just He just wasted all that time. And so an artisan that was not sincere would make his piece of art insincere. He would take wax, and he would melt it, and he would mold it, and he'd put it in the nose, and then he'd sell it as a sincere piece. He would, he, they would even have signs that said, without wax on their storefront. You'd go in, you'd be like, hey, I'm going to buy a good, you get what you pay for, right? And they'd pay the full price, and they'd buy this thing, they'd get it home, they'd set it up so their, their guests could see it, and then the sunlight would hit it, and what would happen to that wax? It would melt. Well, things that happen in our lives, trials, tribulations, when the heat gets turned up, God always watches the temperature gauge. He does allow the heat to turn up, but he keeps his eye on the temperature gauge. And when something in us is insincere, God's trying to melt it off. But Paul says to them, I, I wasn't insincere, I was sincere. Everything I said, he goes on to say, verse 13, for we're not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. In other words, hey, you guys are trying to interpret what I wrote. You ever talk to somebody and you're like, I wonder what they meant by that. Paul's saying, what I wrote is what I meant, okay? Here's how you interpret me. If I say it, that's what I mean. You don't, you don't have to dig deeper. I'm not deep. I'm Paul. I write everything in many, many words so that you'll understand. And yet, you guys are reading things in to what I've written. Later, they'll say, you know, his words are weighty in his letters, but when he comes to us, he's kind of a weakling. He's kind of scrawny. He's got a hooked nose. His eyes leak. What's wrong with Paul? And Paul's saying, I've just been through a lot. I got a lot of scars. God's been good to me. But that doesn't mean that I, everything's been perfect. Verse, uh, I'm closing up, I promise. 
I've said that before, right? Now I trust you will understand even to the end, as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, the work that's happened in our lives is because you guys have encouraged me and because me working with you guys, even though you're a troublesome group, has perfected me because it's caused me to think, hey, maybe I shouldn't trust so much on what they think about me. I'll just be faithful to what God's given me to do. And vice versa, my boast is in you because there's fruit that's abounded to me just abiding in Christ and being who he's made me. Paul was a mouthpiece for God. And because he was a mouthpiece for God, he spoke a lot. And because he spoke a lot, you can see the fruit of what he had to say. Verse 15, And in this confidence, I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit. I wanted to benefit you when I came, to pass by the way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on the way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh that with me there should be a yes, yes, or a no, no? But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. We weren't double-minded. We weren't being double-tongued, he says. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen. In other words, so be it. To the glory of God through us. Now, he who establishes, excuse me, he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, chosen us, sent us out, is God, who has also sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So he's saying, just because we didn't do this thing that we said we would do and come at a certain time that you thought we would come does not make God unfaithful. If anything, we had promised something that was outside of the will of God, and he showed us that by not letting us come. He says, but the truth is, is that the message that we preached is not changed at all because of our not making it when you thought we would. So what I want to give to you is that the theme of this book is comfort in affliction. And Paul is basically going to, he's going to cut his heart open and he's going to display it in front of the Corinthians. Have you ever shared your heart with somebody? Have you ever revealed the innermost thoughts that you've had about them or for them or to them? It's, um, it's embarrassing. It's, it's humbling. It's hard because you know that as soon as you bear you take that shield off your heart and you bear it to somebody they can use it against you well paul bears no expense he shows them he tells them everything in this letter one commentator actually calls this paul's heart wide open many people think that paul was kind of a hard-driven hateful man he was just rough on people but paul really cared about people and that's why he was straightforward with them and as he continues to show his heart towards them he's going to let them know i've i've come i've come to you and i've shared the gospel with you through much affliction and it didn't deter me at all because i was living to please jesus and so um hopefully we can close on a on a good note today paul's explaining to them suffering is something god uses to change us suffering is something that god uses to proclaim the gospel to other people but also paul says i'm sincere I love you, I care about you, and I'm willing for you to whip me or tongue-lash me and still show you the love of Christ because Christ has first done that for me.
In 2 Corinthians, he writes this, It's the love of Christ that compels me. And the love of Christ was a love that approached the people that were against him, delivered the message, let those people who he came to save kill him, rise from the dead, and then send people to continue delivering the message that Christ's love can change you, Christ's love can deliver you, Christ's love will comfort you along the way, and Christ's love will ultimately bring you home to Jesus, a changed individual. No doubt we're changed by receiving the gospel, but there's still work that God's doing on us, and sometimes he allows the heat to be turned up in our lives to do so. Paul was no different. I like this about Paul. He says, I was scared to death while I did what God's will was for me, and I'll never be the same because of it, because I kept going. So hopefully you're encouraged this morning to keep going. We're going to take communion. I went a little over, and I'm sorry, Um, but we're going to do things a little different this morning. I'm going to get up here.